0: Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Jay Mason. Welcome to another special episode of Beyond the Album Cover where we take a look at music and everything else in between. We're going to do that, but we're also going to infuse some voice talk into it, because right now on the phone, I have with me my man, Desmond Johnson, from the show The Rundown and of Carolina Sports Monthly. Desmond, welcome to the show. Hey, man. How's it going? It's going well, man. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this interview with me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh,
1: when you asked me to, to do it, I was like, yes, just let me know when, and uh, we can get popping. So uh, I'm
0: <laughs> Hey. All right, so tell our audience outside of the NC Triad area that don't know about Carolina Sports Monthly and how the rundown came about. Well, Sports Carolina Monthly. I'm
1: not going to tickle you that because a lot of people get that backwards <laughs> the first couple of times, as they said, but it's Sports Carolina Monthly, and actually, whoosh, where to begin? Um, I was a writer. It, it started off as a print piece. The former owner, before I owned it, started a print magazine here in the Triad because he wanted to focus on prep athletes that weren't getting a lot of exposure through the regular network, and uh, he created like this 24-page monthly print magazine that basically spotlighted all-star prep athletes in the area and I randomly found a, an issue like in its first year of publication. I found one like in a pizza parlor or something in Greensboro. I started reading through it and he had an ad for a writer's one. So I started contacting him and then I became a monthly writer for Sports channel Monthly for about five or six years and left because I received another opportunity in the newspaper world and it was kind of a conflict of interest so I left the magazine for about a year, maybe two years and then left that company and what I did it was kind of at a crossroads in terms of what I wanted to do. And at the same time, a previous owner of SportsCenter mostly the thing about it is basically Retiring the brand, he was getting burnt out from doing the print piece every month, pretty much by himself. And offered to buy the brand that had been around for like seven years at that point. Here in the triad, offered to buy the brand from him. And I told him, if I buy it, I'm not going to do the print piece. I'm going to basically turn this into a, a 24-hour online digital presence. So bought the brand at the end of 2016. Slowly went about the fact of building the website, just kind of building a little buzz that way. And really, in the past year or two, we've kind of pivoted more toward digital productions in terms of podcasts, sports broadcasting. We started doing high school sports here in the area, like high school football. So we'll probably expand that a little bit more as we go deeper in 2020, whenever sports return. And just basically just seeing where it goes from there. So it's kind of an organic thing that kind of started from a print piece that I found in a pizza parlor about 10 years ago.
0: Okay, and then the rundown is like an offshoot of the digital component? So the
1: rundown, basically the radio station that was here in the Triad was kind of playing with words. Right around the same time when I left that newspaper in 2015 and bought Sports Toronto Monthly, I was looking to get back into radio because that was kind of what I was majoring in in college. I'm a proud UNC Greensboro Spartan alumni like yourself, and a lot of my background was media, radio in particular, and production. So at that point, you know, I'm like 39. I'm trying to figure out, you know, what exactly do I want to do? Maybe I should use the degree that I've been, you know, spending kind of paid for for the past like decade or whatever, and actually use it for what it was for, and approach the local radio station here, pitched an idea to them to do a Saturday morning kind of a recap type show of uh, sports that happened over the course of the week because they had no local presence on during the weekend. And a rundown was born about two years ago here on WSJS Sports Hub Triad. We were originally on 10 to 11 a.m. every Saturday morning. After our one-year anniversary, we expanded later that summer lasted two hours so it was from 10 a.m. to 12 noon every Saturday morning and then here in November due to budget cut and other things the station began to trim down and I was the programming director there actually for about a year and a half and my position was eliminated and with that the rundown was taken off the air but I owned the rights to it so it came with me and since then we've been able to put it online in a digital format which is basically the way I wanted it to begin with to kind of make it more broader than just North Carolina for it so but right now with no sports. There's no official schedule for Rundown. There's a new episode every week, but we do have some stuff planned here that we might be able to talk about later on in this episode in terms of what me and the fellows are doing for the Rundown. Right,
0: and for those of you that are outside of the NC listening area, the triad consisted of Greensboro, Winston-Salem, and High Point, where I spent a good five years of my life, like you stated earlier, Dez. Uh, we are both alums of University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Ron you graduated a year before I came in in two thousand. 2004. Shout out to my homie, Chris Lee, who is currently the sports anchor for WRL TV5 Volley Dome NC Market. Yeah,
1: man, Chris, that's my boy, man. I graduated, like you said, about four years before Chris. Me and him, our paths at UNCG are basically identical. We both worked at Spartan Television. We both worked at the radio station on campus at a UAG. A lot of good memories there. Very active in the media studies department there with the professors and everyone else. And Chris has been a guest on the rundown multiple times. In fact, I want to say he was one of the very first guests on the very first show. I think it was him on the very, very first show with him and Kyle Butler who uh, also went to UNCG at the time. So I've known Chris for a long time. We've worked together at Intercom and super, super proud of him. Super, super proud of what he's doing him and his uh, his cute little family there.
0: Oh, yeah, because actually as I was talking with you uh, earlier that Chris and I, we were roommates together and we came up in BCN at the same time. I started at WAG fall of 04. He came on the following semester now through his show, I got exposed to how deep the triad was in as far as hip-hop goes because I grew up in the eastern part of North Carolina, which is close to Virginia, and hip-hop scene out in that part of the state was very unheard of. So once I moved to Greensboro, it was like, whoa, I didn't know the legacy of the triad's contributions to local hip-hop, like with the Busy Boys, Rest in Peace, and Illusion, and it also helped launch the career of Ski
1: yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned my boy Dana, West and East, Dana Lucci, uh, it's crazy. He had a, for those that don't know, Dana Lucci was a pioneer of hip hop here in this area. He's basically considered the godfather of the hip hop scene here, the independent scene here. Basically showed everybody how to do it, how to do it independently, and he was just starting to make some moves. The last conversation I had with him was about a week or two before he passed, and he was in the middle of getting ready to start shooting a, a feature film, and I was gonna come on board to help him with that, and I had just filmed an episode so, uh, he had an online show called Hip Hop Star where he basically was spotlighting independent hip hop acts here in the triad or in North Carolina to country red and I had recorded an episode with him for it with her but it'll never see the light of day it'll never edited it out before you pass it's somewhere in the archives out there for some of the stuff he had but yeah I mean he exposed me to independent hip hop here in Greensboro the mid to late 90s with his uh, group Pit Falkers got to Salinsky and all those guys a couple of them are no longer with R.I.P. to Ocean Back as well but that group, you mentioned the Busy Boys, who uh, Dana was with uh, in the 80s and kind of created uh, stuff with. They kind of spawned the next generation, which was me and my people and all the DJs, all the hip-hop artists that kind of came out in the 90s, early 2000s from this area. They basically are uh, a branch of the, the Dana Lucci family tree. And uh, we still miss them, man. It, it still hurts. He was one of the ones that didn't to leave early. So, you know, we're still kind of mourning about his past.
0: Yeah, because I have a friend of mine actually. Shout out to my boy, CJ. Uh, he used to dance with the Busy Boys. When he was a kid, I got a chance to check him out doing a dinner theater show out in Pigeon Forest, Tennessee, a couple of months back. Wow. Great guy. He can sing his butt off, dance his butt off. And uh, while I was actually at that show, I ended up uh, running into uh, Mr. Robbie.
1: Oh wow, yeah, yeah.
0: Trust Mr. Marazzi and uh, oh, uh oh dear.
1: man, there's a lot of talent right here in North Carolina. It actually surprised me that a lot of it never got out. A lot of the talent here in North Carolina, like from my generation, I'm 42, so I live like golden era hip hop is the entire decade of the 90s, from like 91 till about 2001. For me, was that was the peak. That was when hip hop got to the point where it was it infiltrated everything mainstream like never before. It just it made it cool to be a part of of it and. Uh, I don't know if we'll ever get back to that level again where there was so much diversity and so much, like, subconscious worth, like, towards each other, like, in it, because we're not in that place right now in hip-hop. I don't Mm -hmm. know what to do to get that back but it, it was a beautiful time growing up in that era and being, you know, in high school when death row started, when bad things started, when Wu-Tang started. Like, I mean, like I grew up on this stuff and was at an age where I'm cognizant enough to remember how important it was when it came out. And now I feel like sometimes the history is being washed away because the current generation that's out right now that are quote-unquote hip-hop stars aren't necessarily paying homage to what came before them. And I get that to a degree because we didn't do that as much um, at first. But eventually you get to an age and you realize, hey, you know, Tribe Called Quest and Daylight and all these other guys, they did this first. And before them, Cornel D and Treasure Street and all these guys, they did this before them. And it's like you kind of start to realize the history of it all. And uh, I don't know if that's there yet with today's current generation of uh, hip-hop stars.
0: Right. And I felt the one person out of the triad during that period that could have broken out, should have, was Gav Beats. Because he had this record called She's Got It that Chris would play on his radio show a whole lot that got mentioned. And it was good to see T. Wizzy out with Hamilton doing this thing and really showcasing himself. Know Gavin too. Like, I know
1: Gavin from back when, like, I remember sitting in my, we used to call it a flat house. It was me and four of the guys. We were running a house on Finley Avenue, like, across the street from, you know, the Campus. So basically, it was a party house. People would be coming in and out all times of the day, all times of the night. The weekends were ridiculous. At the time, one of my roommates, Caleb Falls, he had a group called Livewire that was mainly a production WAC type group type thing and um, we had a full blown studio in that house that uh, the kids would put together with rebate checks from uh, semesters. like you he would, he would get a check in each semester so that was the extra from after paying boxes and books and everything and he would really go take that 2500 or whatever and go straight to the musician store and buy an MPC or buy a normalizer or something, some kind of gear. And just semester by semester, you just started building the studio. We would have people come through, man, and do stuff, and Gab would come through. Um, I mean, I remember way back, like I grew up with this guy, Jason Stewart, who was with Gavin at the time. He goes by the name of uh, Juice Jones now. He's actually, he was just on a station out in California, like, last week, so he's still trying to do his thing. But Gavin, well, I was introduced to Gavin by, Sue. I mean, this was way back when Gavin was just doing everything on, like, a basic Casio keyboard and just pounding out snares and drums, and they'd always be off-center. <laughs> Like, his bass would be super loud and, like, nothing's mixed right, but you can hear the music in it. And to see where he was then, this is, like, 2001, probably. Yeah, somewhere 2001, 2002. To see where he was there to where he is now, because he's still making music. I check his Instagram videos and stuff all the time. He's still out there putting in work. He's just advanced so much over the past two decades that it's pretty cool to say that, you know, I knew him when he was still learning like the rest of us was. And I
0: always felt that, in my personal opinion, that North Carolina always was competition with what's going on in New York and in Atlanta, because since we're the middle way in between both states, we couldn't really find our own footing in terms of sound, but it's good to see now with the likes of DaBaby, J. Cole, Brassidy, pretty much putting NC Hip Hop on the map. And one of the forefathers of North Carolina Hip Hop is the trio, based out of Raleigh, North Carolina, Fonte, Nice Wonder, Big Poo, Little Brother. So tell me about your thoughts when you first heard Little Brother when the listening dropped along with the chipmunk. Mix oh man, first time I
1: heard Little Brother would have been back in college, probably about 01, 02, on some sort of mixtape. It was probably the listing actually. And the thing that drew me to it first was that I found out that Ninth Wonder was using Food Loops. To make his beats with as I was listening because I could kind of, I was a producer so I could like listen to a beat and like picture how it was made because I was so used to being in certain programs and how to sequence things and quantize and that kind of stuff. I'm listening to the listening and it's this weird kind of drawn out, uh, like organ kind of with this weird snap and snare and kick and like I could kind of see it like on a grid like in three boots like how he made it. So that drew me in and then a couple years down the road my roommate, his ex-wife actually went to school with Fonte. He went to school at Page here in Greenville. Borough High School, and ninth went to school at Glenn here in my hometown in Kernersville, and from Southside Winston, so they were more local than I thought, and then they got their big deal signed, to the Menstrual Show, I think that was like 05, maybe? and Yeah, Menstrual
0: Show was 05. Yeah,
1: so like right there in that pocket where, the little Brothers is a good example of what I think real North Carolina hip-hop was during that time, because they were kind of a mix of like Outcast meets Tribe Called Quest kind of where like the content they were talking about was very clear, precise, very socially conscious. The beats they were selecting were soulful. Like Ninth had a real ear for like picking samples. I don't know, they just encompassed like what I felt like the pure hip hop in North Carolina was at that time. And the group I was in, we basically sounded like Little Brother listening to their older stuff. We were based on the same stuff, same type of beat and everything else. Unfortunately, I don't think we'll ever see Little Brother in that same lineup again. It sounds like Pooh and Fonse have made up, they just put out an album, Late last year, but Ninth wasn't with them. got some interviews that, well, Ninth hasn't really given any, but Fonte and Pu have basically said that, you know, they're, they're done after for Knife to come back. I don't know exactly what the fault was regarding that, but it almost sounds like ninth thought he was bigger than Little Brother or grew bigger than Little Brother. Didn't want to go back. And then we try to give him beats they weren't feeling. They would want to use different producers. He wasn't feeling that. So in the end, they were just like, you know what, we're just going to start this over from scratch and, and get our own producers or whatever. So that that vibe and that feeling that they had early 2000s with Knights on the board, I don't know if that's going to ever come back. Never say never, but as it stands right now, I don't think it's likely that we'll see the three of them
0: together Again. Because listening to interviews with Fonte that he did with Jamel Hill, and of course he did a stint on Questlove Supreme with Questlove, it kind of seemed like their issues were kind of similar to the issues that Tribe had, and they're definitely an offshoot of that Native Tongues era, Tribe, Daylock, mm-hmm. and Pete Rock, Feel Smooth Black Sheep, that whole period. But May the Lord watch. It was a good album to me. You kind of missed Nice on the beats, but Fonte Improved brought it lyrically. And for me, it was up there with Rhapsody's Eve album along with YBN The Lost Boy album as my top three rap albums of 2019. And for those of you that don't know, YBN Corday, he was born in Raleigh but was actually raised in Maryland. So he kind of has some empty ties.
1: I feel bad. I have not gotten a chance to really sit down and dissect that Eve album from Rhapsody, which of course was produced by Night Warner. But yeah, I mean, I would agree album that just came out from Little Brother. Honestly, I listen to it more and more the further away I am from when it actually was released and I actually respect it more and more the more I go back into it and listen to it. It's a little jarring. The beats aren't nice, but to be honest, the album they had before this one was done without Knight too. Cause really, if I'm not mistaken, Fontaine said that this stuff started happening during the menstrual show. That they had started pulling people you know, away from each other or whatnot. And now, you know, Knight's teaching in college. He's got his own production stuff going on. He's got Jamla going on, the record label and everything. So he's got his own thing going on. Pooh and Fonte are kind of over here doing their own thing. But yeah, when you talk about North Carolina groups and hip hop, I think Little Brother deserves to be towards the top of that list. They're the ones that kind of expose that element of hip hop. Uh, to the masses that hadn't really gotten that far before,
0: right? And I just went back a couple of months ago and re-listened to the menstrual show. For me, the listening is my favorite rap album of all time but listening to the Dimensional Show I felt it was very well put together and Little Brother came along at a time when social media was still in its infancy where everybody was still on AIM or Yahoo Messenger and OK Player those message boards and I felt like had social media would have been as big as it is now back then Little Brother definitely would have had the commercial success they should have deserved because I believe that album Dimensional Show got five mics in the source yeah
1: actually Dimensional Show I probably Lean menstrual show more than the listening just because with the menstrual show I love conceptual albums like that are thought out from beginning to end like it's not just songs just kind of thrown out there in any random order it's actually like a, a compact almost like you're watching a movie from beginning to end and like tell the whole story and Minstrel Show does that in a certain way it kind of pokes fun at what we think of cells as black Americans like out to the masses but then it also makes fun of the fact that we're selling ourselves out the same way since the title Minstrel Show and night was in bag on that CD in terms of the production Slow It Down is probably one of my favorite Little Brother songs ever and it's probably because of the beat what he did to that sample and flipped it, I could, right now, I could literally throw it on and play it five times back to back to back. So, I mean, and there's a couple songs like that on that project. Yeah, Mitchell shows up there with me, definitely.
0: Cause I like that whole album as a whole, cause I like to listen from top to bottom. The skit, hilarious. The fifth in fashion skit. I was like, why in the world do you have to make fun of my area of North Carolina? I'm not from a hockey, but I'm like an hour and 30 minutes away from a hockey. So a lot of people tend to have this view of northeastern North Carolina, pretty much 252 area. As being country, rural, and backwards, not as sophisticated. So I kind of took a little slight jab at that. And then I was speaking to my wife, was telling her that the hip hop class that he teaches with Dr. Mark Anthony Neal, that'll be the only time I will ever ever step foot on the campus of Duke. I am not a Duke fan. I'm Tar Heel born, Tar Heel bred. When I die, I'll be Tar Heel dead. Hey, that's what
1: I'm talking about. Hey, right here, born born and raised. So yeah, I'm the same way now. Being a sport that I have to give Duke credit and talk about Duke on an even level, but yeah, off the mic or whatnot, people know how I feel about Duke, and I know how people feel about me feeling that way about Duke, so.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, at least for um, Carolina this year, no tournament, and you could pretty much put that season in the rearview mirror now. Speaking of one of the greatest basketball players to ever don the Carolina Blue, Michael Jeffrey Jordan, the last dance has been capturing the nation's attention with millions of viewers' And the social media responses are hilarious. Tell me about the impact you think Michael Jordan has had not only in the basketball world, but musically because, you know, his shorts and his look adopted the hip-hop aesthetic, even though Jordan really didn't fully embrace hip-hop. Man,
1: before Last Dance started, I went back and watched a couple of the documentaries that the director of the Last Dance did. Um,
0: Jason Aaron. Yeah
1: jason area he did uh, the documentary on the 85 bears the 30 for 30 and he did the 30 for 30 my favorite 30 for 30 of all time uh which is the fat five and in that documentary towards the beginning jalen rose and like ray jackson and jimmy king they're all talking about their first day of practice at michigan where they're trying to convince the coach to let them wear baggy shorts like jordan wears so this is 92 91 92 so two of my favorite college basketball teams of all time aren't even North Carolina teams. They're the, the 1990 UNLV running Rebels and the 91-92 the Michigan Fat Five Wolverines because of what they meant to the culture. Like, yes, UNLV won. They beat the brakes off of everybody. And Michigan, yes, they didn't win a title or anything. I don't even think they won a Big 10 title, but they went to two Final Fours. But they're so much bigger than what they have in their hard work case. Like, most people if they're around at that time, you can still name all five members of the Fab Five. But you probably can't name the five guys. And you're a Carolina fan. You probably can't name the starting five that play against them in the 1993 National Championship game unless you just die no I,
0: I think the only person that I know of that started on that championship team was George Lynch I believe yeah let me see if I can try. I think it, was, it was
1: George Lynch Eric Montross Derek Phelps was at the point Brian Reese and Donald Williams was a shooting right hey, and did it pretty
0: easily
1: but most people can't but most people can name the Fab Five you know like what they did the bald heads the baggy shorts the, the black socks like they were bringing streetball to the TV it made some people uncomfortable they were an extension of what UNLV was doing the two years before they arrived because UNLV was doing this it not the same level as the Fab Five UNLV was was like this, but they were beating everybody. <laughs> you know, they were like, every... I remember during UNLV's run, really the two-year run, I remember especially that last year when Larry Johnson was a senior and J.T. Ogman was a senior, and they were trying to win. They were on like a 38-39 game win streak or something, and CBS would have them on every Saturday or Sunday. It would be one of those two days they'd have a UNLV game on the afternoon, and we would, me and my boys would sit down and basically watch UNLV beat the ever-loving breaks off of whoever it was they were playing, 30 points, 40 points. And it was relentless. Like, it was just dunks and just embarrassment <laughs> like for two hours and we ate it up we loved it being you know 11 12 year old black kids going up in North Carolina to see this and you know these guys aren't wearing you know booty shorts and real tight jerseys and anything you know Larry Johnson got a gold tooth they got tattoos they're talking trash they're, they're getting hyped they're hollering on the court we'd go outside and try to emulate what we saw on the basketball goal after they were done and the Michigan was just that kind of 10 in terms of cultural element you know like I said they didn't win anything they didn't win a Big Ten title, they didn't win a national championship, but what they won was the heart of black America over those two years, which is why they're still talked about so fondly to this day, even though they never won anything. Those two teams, to me, are just so huge towards basketball and hip-hop in general.
0: Right, and also, we can go as far back and kind of look at those mid-80s John Thompson Georgetown teams They adopted that hip-hop persona, and also those the youth football teams of the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, they had... Uncle Luke, Luke Campbell down on the sideline.
1: Yeah. And, see, and that kind of goes along with what I was saying before coincides with the 90s being the golden era of hip-hop to me because the, look at those teams you just named, the early 80s Georgetown team. Uh, well, really the entire decade of the 80s, that was Miami squad, that first run, UNLV, Michigan. The one thing all four of those had in common was that at the time America was trying to paint them as the bad guys, the villains. They were the man in black, you know. They were the ones that were not supposed to cheer for. And what ended up happening was that it almost turned into like a, an NWO, New World Order type thing where for those not familiar with wrestling or whatnot, but I think everybody knows what the NWO is at this point, they were supposed to be a villain group, but they were so cool that people started to cheer for them. So you have people cheering for the heels instead of booing them and it made them even cooler as a result, and I think that's what happened with the Fab Five, with UNLV, especially in hindsight. Uh, and then like those Georgetown teams and others, where they were treated one way at the time, but then looking back in it on history, we were really lucky to have a lot of that stuff out there,
0: right? And I think those bad boys Pistons teams don't get enough credit because they kind of adopted that tough hip hop persona. I mean, you're from Detroit, gritty, grimy, and they got sandwiched right in between the Magic and Bird era of the '80s with Lakers, Celtics. And then the coming of age of Jordan and those Bulls teams. And I think that those Pistons teams should be recognized for what they did. I think they get just enough credit. I hate the Pistons to this day
1: <laughs> because of that team. And a large part of it was, I could see what you're saying in terms of some of the uh, the parallels, but those Pistons teams don't remind me of hip hop at all. Actually, they kind of remind me of a true heel stable in a wrestling faction, like a, I don't even know, Dungeon of Doom or something, but it felt like they weren't playing basketball a lot of times. Like in the eighties and early nineties, yeah, the NBA was refereed a lot differently than it is today. You get away with a whole lot, but with no sports on, i would able to go back and watch a lot of classic stuff. And man, those Pistons were playing football like they were literally—it was dirty ball. Yeah, it was a dirty, not clean version of the game, and it wasn't very fluid. They get a lot of credit for being one of the better defensive teams ever, but it's easy to be a great defensive team if you're putting somebody on their ass every time they come through the lane and just taking the foul or grabbing somebody by the neck or you know what I mean. Like they just—I don't. No, like, I actually, I was talking to Rod Funderburk, he's one of my co-hosts on the rundown, and uh, we'll probably talk about this here soon on an episode, but this whole thing about should Isaiah Thomas been on the Dream Team or not, I've always looked at it like, no, he shouldn't have been on the Dream Team, because if he was on the Dream Team, the Dream Team wouldn't have existed, because if he was picked to be on that team, Jordan wouldn't have played, Pippen wouldn't have played, Maggie Johnson wouldn't have played, Barry Bird wouldn't have played, and it was basically Isaiah Thomas, Claude Drexler, and a couple other guys, maybe Patrick Ewan or whatever, but Isaiah wasn't going to be on that team, like, there was no way for him to be on the team because of the personality he had. With Jordan and Pippen in particular, they did not want him on that team. And now they're coming out all saying now that no one ever said, Isaiah can't be on the team or anything like that. But we kind of understood. And a lot of people forget in terms of Isaiah and Magic, they had a falling out. They were good friends, but then they had a falling out after Magic announced he had HIV. And Isaiah Thomas publicly wondered aloud how he got it. Basically insinuating that Magic might be gay. And that made them have a falling out. Larry Bird and Isaiah weren't good friends. People may or may not remember Dennis Robinson comments about Larry Bird being a white ball player and he's getting more accolades. And then Isaiah said, well, if he was black, then he'd just be another guy. They kind of squashed that for the camera. Larry acted like he was bigger than all of it. But Larry Bird also strikes me as the type that holds grudges. (laughs) Yeah,
0: just like Michael.
1: Right, exactly. Like, to this day, if you're watching The Last Dance, you can feel the virtual between Michael Jordan and Isaiah Thomas. And you can also feel Isaiah Thomas kind of trying to back away from it all. Like, if I had known now what the backlash would have been back then, I would have done it differently. And Jordan's been like, oh, well, he's only saying that because he knows what it's like right now. Like, if if this was happening right now, he wouldn't be sorry for any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, mean, he called him an a-hole and everything else so I mean they're still not cool we wouldn't have had the greatest basketball team ever assembled if Isaiah Thomas had been selected for that team so I think it was a collective no, and because of that, I don't know if his career is tarnished. I mean, he's a two-time NBA champion, he's a top-ten point guard of all time, a Hall of Famer. I mean, it is what it is. He wasn't on that same level as Michael or Bird or Magic.
0: Mm. And uh Zach Gordon dropped a diss track to Dwayne Wade over the him getting robbed during this past slam dunk contest. It brought to mind to me, it was around 93 or 94. The NBA put out a CD called That's Kept Secret, and you had NBA players of the day Raffin. Uh You had Gary Payton, Dana Barrows, Cedric Chavallos, the late Malik Sealy, and actually Brian Shaw's rap was it half <laughs> dead. I and I think they need to rap. I think they need to bring that back. It was definitely better than uh Shaq's attempt, but hey Shaq went double platinum off the um the diesel album. I
1: was gonna say hey Shaq got rhythm and Shaq can actually rap.
0: He's going up against well with the
1: last thing he was doing, he's going up against uh Dame Lillard and Dane can actually really, really rap. Like he got Yeah,
0: Dane got bars.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: he could Yeah, Dane better have bars, he's from Oakland. Empty Hammer, too short, he better represent E forty. Hey people clown Hammer man, but early Hammer,
1: Hammer used to go hard, man. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Like
0: Hammer fell there. on the, ha, yeah. Hammer fell on the sword so that we could have Drake.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. If Hammer was in
0: 2020, he'd be Drake. Right. Exactly yeah, please, Hammer, don't hurt him. Hammer was the biggest, not just rap star, but biggest pop star in the world. If you went to a concert, you was getting a full show, dancing oh, yeah. the whole work. But I That's think that was. Dancers. Yeah, but I I think that was primarily because, as you know, at that time in hip-hop, there was that divide between backpack, conscious rap, and the mainstream rap artists, and they wanted to keep it more underground. But what Hammer did was figure out a sweet spot to wear. How can I make rap music acceptable to the mainstream audience? And it got played on pop radio, urban radio, worldwide exposure, but Dr. Dre figured out, how can I make rap for the pop boys? but still maintain their integrity amongst the hood. Yeah, yeah
1: you phrased it perfectly. Like, 80s hip-hop was about partying. You know, where's the best party? Or bragging. You know, I got a bigger TV than you. My car's shiner than yours. You know what I mean? Like, a rat better than you. Like, it was that was really either more braggadocious or it was about having a good time. It was about dancing, getting play. you know, that kind of stuff. And the 90s, what we were going through in real life was starting to seep into the music. So, like, 91, you know, Deep Cover, Dr. Dre, Snoop, that kind of ushered in. That really, to me, ushered in the golden era hip-hop. like the kind of the middle to tail end of N.W.A., all the way past that to Death Row and Bad Boy and all that stuff, East Coast, West Coast beef, and everything. I'm a senior in high school in 96 you know, at the peak of all this. And, like, I'm trying to figure out today how big would this have gotten if, if social media existed in 95, 96 when Tupac and Diggy were beefing or when Suge and Puff were beefing. Or... I can't even fathom it because back then it felt so huge. Like, I mean, Dan Rather's talking about this on the CBS Even News. Like, when all of us only have three channels, all of us are mainly getting... Back then, we had a gatekeeper for hip-hop It was the source, basically. Like, the source told you what albums were hot, what albums were not good, what clothes to wear, what was garbage. Uh, who to listen to what the lyrics were like it, it literally was kind of our gatekeeper for the whole culture and when that went away along with like WXL and stuff like that that's when you've seen the split in hip hop where it used to be biting somebody's style was was punishable by getting beat down they were find you you sound like Rakim you sound like Soup, you sound like Q-Tip or whatever you're jockeying somebody's style now it's kind of accepted to do that so everybody sounds the same everybody uses auto-tune everybody uses the same five stripped down beats with the weak line and the a simple little snap or whatnot, everyone kind of went trap, and it to me it kind of ruined what we had built for the 25 years before we got here and I don't know exactly how it comes back the other way because those traditional channels of being able to check what we're doing aren't there anymore. We don't have that gatekeeper to tell you this is a four and a half mic album or this is a three mic album and then for you to be able to debate that with your friends on whether or not they were right or wrong or oftentimes not, they were right and we don't have it anymore so now we don't have anything to tell us if that Migos album is good or if that little baby album is, is bad or, or whatever it might be there's nothing singular out there that's like the bible for the culture that everybody agrees on they have their finger on the pulse and they know what's good and what's hot and what's not and that really is what's really missing the hip hop right
0: now and what were your thoughts on once Ski Beat finally broke out nationally with its production on Reasonable Doubt and then Camp Lowe's Uptown Saturday Night album and then also the rise of the south in terms of hip hop with Atlanta coming to its own Houston breaking out nationally, New Orleans breaking out nationally, and just the South in general?
1: Um, I never knew Ski. Like I said, I knew Dana really well, Dana Lucci, and he knew Ski, and I knew some artists at the time that were messing with Ski because I think after he did Reasonable Doubt, he was back here for a little while. He had produced I in Hot Right. I don't know if remember. He, I yeah, remember. N- N- the, the Right Now joint,
0: the Now City joint.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Now City. He, I think he came back here to Greensboro and started Now City, and uh, Hot Right was like the first artist, and he had the joint that was playing on 102, and was doing a bus, starting to do some shows, and I think he went to jail or something, and it kind of derailed the whole movement, and um, I don't know what he was doing after that, but yeah, especially Atlanta and Organized Noise, they're one of my favorite production groups of all time, because of just using live instruments and and being creative with what they do. Uh, Outkast, Goody Mob, and then later T.I., Ludacris, that whole movement down there really built up like what we see today in Southern Hip Hop, but Outkast in particular, they are probably the biggest in influence in terms of what I look for in like a hip-hop group. It's awful. Of, if you go and listen to Southern Plylistic Cadillac music and then go listen to Speaker Box of Love Below, like Asterix, and just hear really the growth from beginning to end, they say true to themselves. They didn't let people change what they were going to be or how they looked or how they sounded and ended up becoming the first, and I think the only rap group to win Album of the Year at the Grammys. I don't think it's been done since they did it, and I don't think it was done before they did it either, so... Yeah.
0: Yeah, I don't <sighs> think so either. Yeah, because that Hotline record actually that Airplane in the Raleigh Durham market as well on K97.5 because I remember hearing that a whole lot and I was super hyped. like Oh, he's from North Carolina, he's from North Carolina. Yeah. And, but what, yeah, but what really put North Carolina on the map for some people was Petey Pablo when Raise Up came out. You can still play it to this day, still get yeah. high because I remember I was a freshman in high school and when he shouted out Halifax County, although I'm from Northampton County, we we're like close enough, he still shouted out our area. But North Carolina has always been rich in terms of music. Musical talent You have Randy Travis, Ronnie Millsap, James Taylor, Jodeci, Anthony Hamilton, Fantasia, Sunshine Anderson. The list goes on and on of all the great music that came out of this state. And we're known more than just NASCAR Testing and Stranger Things.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, like, North Carolina over the past 20, 25 years, I think both the coast, New York, and L.A. are starting to realize that there's talent down here. And they flocked to Atlanta first, which is, you know, understandable. But now I think Charlotte and, like, the Triangle, and even here in the Triad, they're starting to get some recognition, to notice that there's, there's a lot, not just hip-hop, but just overall. Like, filmmakers, comedians. you know, talked about Chris Lee earlier. He's doing his thing. If I'm not mistaken, he's the first lead. Black Anchor at WRAL. Yes. Um, so shout out to him. Shout out to my boy Dot over at One of Two Jams. He's doing his thing. He's been on Blowing Out and... Uh, on MTV and, you know, doing shows at Comedy Zone. He's still running the morning show at 102. 2. cross path a lot. He's been a guest on my show a couple of times. I mean, there's people out here doing their thing, including myself. So, I mean, it just depends on, you know, being able to have the mentality to not accept that you can't do this on your own. you got to have this, you got to have that, and these people and those people. And that's not necessarily the case, especially now in 2020. You've got the idea and the ability to go and take care of it. You can pretty much do whatever you want to do, and that's kind of what we're all doing right now.
0: Right, which I think is the great thing about technology is that no longer do you need a gatekeeper to give you approval, you can just go online put it out there and it's good, they'll find it.
1: Yeah, pretty much. We kind of eliminated the, the record companies and the labels and the movie studios and things like that because the technology got easier to buy and do yourself. We started teaching ourselves how to edit, how to shoot video, how to do fancy effects and how to produce and how to do all this stuff in-house. And to be honest, the part of the reason why I don't think hip hop will ever get back to where it was because you're not going to really have situations where you have hip hop labels like No Limit or Cash Money or Death Row Bad Boy Duck Down Wu-Tang like back then Lao loud. Loud. yeah back then all that stuff I mean those labels were like click, you know, like... Rockets? Right. This label would have this imprint underneath it. It was Rockefeller. You know, it was like all of them like underneath this imprint, but that imprint's under Death Jam or Bad Boys Under Aristide, Death Rose Under Printer Scope. And now that model doesn't exist anymore because we kind of took the middleman out. Like, we don't need the labels or the movie studios or whatever anymore to get our content out to people. We can literally shoot a movie, put it on YouTube, promote it ourselves, and the money comes back to us. Instead of us getting 5%, we're getting 50 It changed the model, but it also flooded the market. It made it where anybody could be a rapper, anybody could be a director, anybody could be a producer. And it watered down the product a little bit, too, I think.
0: Mm, Right, because that's how Issa Rae got her start. She had a web series on YouTube, Aqua Black Girl, and that pretty much led to her breakout HBO series of Insecure, which I'm a huge fan of. Yeah, my wife
1: watches it. I haven't had a chance to check it out, but um, I'm a big Issa Rae fan. Anybody that's out here doing, regardless of the black, white, whoever, anybody that's out here doing this on their own, I'm a big fan of brand builders, people that build their own brands. You know, like, whether it's whatever it is you're doing, if people can attest that that is something that that person does well or if someone says sports talk or something like that, the first thing they think of is me, then my job is being done. Like, you know, those are the people I respect, the people that can basically go out and build their own brand across multiple platforms, multiple genres, and be known for certain things that they do. Issa Rae is fantastic doing that.
0: So tell me a little bit about Chinese chicken with ketchup with uh, Showdown, your baby dick.
1: <laughs> so, uh... Showdown's another one or two jams. Alumni from here, for those who don't know, they're the only hip hop station in the area, only 100,000 walk station in the area that plays hip hop music exclusively. And, um, I worked there in 2007, 2008. I was a town executive for them. It was one of the first real jobs I had out of college. And, um, it was only there for about a year or so and then left. But my buddy over there, Kevin Chaos, always told me that, you know, once you're jams family, your jams family for life pretty much, no matter how long you've worked here. And, and he's right. Like, I can run across like VDOT, like, you know, we used to do remotes together back in 07. Didn't see him for like a decade run back and tell him it's like we just saw each other in the break room last you know yesterday you know it's like when it was Chris Lee like we, we never really crossed paths at Jams, but he was the morning producer of the morning show at that time but Kyle Centillion who's up in Chicago right now and my homegirl Africa and all and all them he was with them as a the producer and I would come in and, and be a sales rep so I was not really on that side of the building that often but we had a connection because we both went to UNCG and went through the same stuff and then after I left we still kept in touch I mean I'm like that with a lot of people over there and I'm super grateful for that. It's one of my favorite jobs I ever had because of it. Showdown was one of the DJs over there. We've worked together before. I used to run a hip-hop online radio station called Second Floor Basement Radio for about eight years. That played just classic hip-hop and independent hip-hop from North Carolina. And Showdown was sending mix shows that he would do called Chinese Chicken with Ketchup. which was like an hour-long, classic, kind of 90s hip-hop mix show. And I'd run him on Saturday. When I shut down that radio station uh, to pursue some other interests, I just kept in touch with the show. And um, now he's doing a show. His show is just like what I was talking about. He's got his own web series he started on YouTube that Amazon Prime just picked up called 85 Central. It's like a cop detective type show that he produces. He directs it. He's got a team with him shooting it and everything. It's really good. And I approached him when all this stuff happened with coronavirus because from my website at sportscoronavirus.com, I was looking for something else to keep track of coming to the site. And I'd already thought about expanding the site to be on sports and making it more like The Ringer, Bill Simmons' website that just got smashed up by Spotify, where, yeah, they're a sports-centric station, or not station, but website, but they also talk music, they talk fashion, they talk television, movies, they – entertainment, pop culture, they kind of do all of that. And that's where I was wanting to take sports going up next in 2020. So I reached out to show to see what he was up to, He mentioned he was going to be doing Chinese Chicken with Ketchup again. And I was like, yeah, we'd love to put it on our Facebook page every Friday and just promote it that way. Promotion for you, promotion for us, get some traffic, and keep your name out there and use it. So, you know, bless him, he was with it. So he it's the twelve part series it comes on every Friday at noon on the SportsCona monthly Facebook page. And it's just pure unadulterated nineties hip hop hosted by Showdown Beats and uh Man's Good. <laughs> it's
0: really yeah, cool. it's good stuff. I've listened to it and um shout out to my boys CJ Riddick and DJ Iron of Smash City Radio, one or two jams. That's the music girl. <laughs> they told me plenty of stories about showdowns. Hilarious. There's this video on YouTube of Showdown. He's at this nightclub and he oh, falls geez. off the stage. <laughs> I play it every time to get a good laugh in, but um, I used to kind of frequent the studios with Chris when he was uh, interning at The Wild Out at 102 with Africa, Cap J, How. Yeah. And I was over in the adjacent studio at a 97.1 Q&G with Buster Brown. And he was over there. So I was kind of familiar. And the good thing about 102 for me that I always appreciated, that Brian Douglas knows talent. Because pretty much everybody that came in at 102 has gone on to do bigger things. You mentioned uh, Calvin Cillian out of Chicago at GCI. Mm-hmm. I think Africa's out in Detroit. Not, the, uh, she, she actually just came back here. She just came back home. Came back. Uh, she okay. Was, she
1: was in Miami, I think, last and then QMG had an opening for middays, and she started coming back home. So she's nice. She's back here now, I believe. Yeah. Um, nice.
0: Yeah, they were there when I
1: got there, and they all treated me like family. And at the time, uh, to be honest, a rough time for my family. Uh, me and my wife, we were going through a whole lot. That one and two James family, literally, I can't put into words what they were doing for my family just to make sure we were all right and. Just financial support mental support just everything and I, once all that was kind of done I decided I needed to leave not because I didn't like the company or the people I was with but I just wasn't in the right frame of mind to do the job that I was doing for them at the time, and just needed to step away and to this day it's one of my favorite jobs I ever had it was stressful with 100% commission, <laughs> but like, people seem to think when you work for one 102, you got a lot of money. And I will say it did give me a lot of opportunity. Like, I met, I met Rick Ross working there. I met Taylor Swift working there. Man, I've met so many stars. Like, I met Taylor Swift before she was Taylor Swift. You know, it's like she was still a country singer. I remember still to this day, she was coming in to do a uh, 93.1 The Wolf Country Station. They would do these things where it was like a, a Friday, like, in-house studio session where, like, tween, like, call-in winners would get to come in and sit with like an artist that would do like a five or eight song set for them in the back of of, uh, Intercom Studios and uh, that week was Taylor Swift and back then this was before her and Kanye before she blew up to be this pop star she was a struggling just got signed, 16, 17 year old country singer and I remember me and my man Kevin Chaos we were sitting in our cubicles or whatever getting ready for our day and she came walking in with her manager kind of like a bodyguard and it was super windy outside that day like the wind was blowing like 50, 60 miles an hour and we were joking that if somebody opened the door somebody needed to hold on to her because she would get sucked out of the door because she literally like she weighed 70 pounds like she literally looked like nothing but just bone like she was so skinny and it's funny that from there to where she is now where she's one of the top not country singers but top singers like in the world and knowing that you know I've shook her hand before you know like I've been in the same room with her before and had a conversation with her before that all came from 102 at Intercom and and Brian Douglas you're right man he just retired actually a couple months ago oh wow yeah he ushered. a lot of talent through all those intercom stations over here in the triad he's a really yeah. good dude he really is
0: definitely a legend he also by the towns of Raleigh Coyote Big Top Money and uh, Morgan McKenzie who I believe just recently got put out in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma I think that's where she's at now I believe
1: oh okay I know Intercom went through some cuts they just announced massive layoffs a couple weeks ago so it did affect a couple people I know but yeah man I still got super fond memories of working at 102 doing the concerts and the events that we would do the remote and just seeing how people just look out whenever that one and two jam van would show up someplace and park and do what they yeah, do
0: and, yeah have that jam sticker have that jam yeah. sticker and, and then summer jam because I remember being in Greensboro, everybody getting hyped for summer jam you get your car cleaned get your hair cut your hair done and you get ready to roll up to the Greensboro Coliseum they call it Gate City Boulevard now but I still call it High Point Road right,
1: everyone here still calls it High Point Road and look i went to the first Super Jam Super Jam 1 it was 97 and I don't know if you remember the bill, but the whole thing of it was 10 acts for $10. That was the whole... What? Yeah, it was 10 acts for $10. So, like, you would pay 10 bucks and it was pretty much any seat in the house and you, you could watch Super Jam and they don't even do Super Jam anymore. They stopped it a couple of years ago. That first Super Jam, yo, okay, Bone was the headliner. So, Bone, plays okay. in harmony was the headliner. It had Lost Boys, Outcast, Lil' Kim and Junior Mafia. I think Drew Hill was supposed to be there but they didn't show up at the last minute. Oconelli, SWV, forgetting somebody, but, like, that was it was 10 crazy yeah, and it was crazy deal. And this is 97. You've seen Little Shimmer Jim and Hopkins in 97. Or you are seeing Outcast in 97, like when AT Aliens just came out. Like, wow. Bone when they dropped that double CD in 97, Art of War, or whatever it was. This would have been in between. So yeah, because I remember they were playing songs we hadn't heard yet that were going to be on that album at Super Jam. So we were hearing new stuff two months before it came out. It was a good time. It was a really good time. Huh. And like, um they went downhill really after Super Jam 2 or 3. The quality of artists they were able to get to come in there became lower and lower. But first it off i mean outcast is like a middle of the show act <laughs> you know on wow. on the bill it was ridiculous. So crazy. I, $10, $10, $10, crazy, dollars man.
0: Crazy. Just reminds me that from a lot of the older heads that grew up in the area, they told me that was when Super Jam and Auntie's Homecoming was lit. Now, two quick points I want to get you on out of here. What you got coming up next on the rundown, and how do you feel about the blur of lines between for pop culture with the likes of podcasts that what Janelle Hill is doing with Unbothered, the Knuckleheads, Quinn Richardson, Darius Miles, Jalen Jacoby, and Vermont Jones.
1: For start with the rundown, what we're doing for the entire month of May, we are launching a 64-team greatest NFL team ever bracket, where basically we uh have seeded out 64 teams, all 52 Super Bowl winners, plus like eight at-large teams that did not win the Super Bowl, but could be considered, you know, like the 2007 New England Patriots, that kind of thing. We just completed our show on the one feed. We selected one feed for this bracket, or for this tournament, and uh, it ended up being the 1985 Chicago Bears, the 92 92- Dallas Cowboys the 89 49ers and the 1978 Pittsburgh Steelers those are the four one seed and and that's important because the way this bracket goes when they meet each other in a contest in that contest the so rules in that contest will be based on whoever the higher seed is so like the 85 Bears take on the 99 Rams somewhere along the way they'll play it underneath 1985 rules instead of 1999 rules which is a huge difference in terms of figuring out who's going to win this game or who isn't because the older part the back is you can, you can toss the wide receiver into the third row the fans if you wanted to and not get a penalty for it. It's different. There's a lot of figuring out to do with this. And if we do a month-long event, we're going to have myself, Brandon Blakey from The Rundown and Rod Funderberg from The Rundown along with some other media personalities and people that I mess with. They're going to be judging the first couple of rounds and, and passing teams through. Me, Brandon, and Rod will do probably Elite Eight, Final Four, and the, the championship game. And we'll try to crown who the greatest NFL team is of all time from it. So we're doing that in May to kind of get our sports whistles wet, so to speak. Your second question about music and sports and stuff kind of crossing over with each other. I think it's a natural progression. We've been doing this now for really as long as hip-hop's not around. It deeps into the culture slowly at first, but now it's like it's the number one music genre in the world. And it's only 40 years old. And I think a lot of people thought it would be a bad, it wouldn't last. And right now, we might be seeing it kind of break up into separate genres or whatnot. But I think it was just natural. All those people you named, like Jamel Hill, myself, and others, we grew up in hip-hop. We don't know anything else. So, like, to put together something on our own, it's probably going to have hip-hop element is because that's what we live that's all we know like I'm 42 so like I'm as old as hip-hop itself like I don't know anything else but hip-hop so like everything I'm not like a street dude or anything like that I've never pretended to be a thug or nothing like that but I know hip-hop I know what I grew up on I know I've been listening to for 42 years and I I know what makes me happy what makes me sad what can move me what can take me back to 1995 in a second you know like that only hip-hop can really do that and I think it's a natural progression I think you'll see more and more of it as you see like corporations start to put it in like you see ESPN whenever they're running a music bed on sports center or something you know 8 times out of 10 it's a hip hop type of bed they're running on because they know what the audience wants. when I was producing sports talk show here in the tribe the past year or so for sports talk triad the average listener age is about my age 35 to 55 year old and they grew up in that pocket of time so for music beds coming out of breaks or whatnot, I'd make sure to play something like classic hip hop because I knew whether you were black, white, male, female whatever if you're four years old or whatnot, and I throw on, you know, Pete Rock and CL Smooth, they reminisce over you, as soon as that beat drops, it's going to take you back to a skating rink or something that was going on in 1991 that you remember, like, you fondly remember it. You equate it to a cookout or a reunion or whatever. So, like, I was making sure to play stuff that people would resonate with when I dropped it. I wanted it to be, like, an old oh, reaction, like, when I dropped it. Like, I haven't heard that in 15 years. Or, oh, man, this was my song when it was that, you that kind of feeling, and I don't really know if you get that from any other genre, so right. um, I think you're going to see it continue and get even bigger. We're actually talking about doing a weekly hip-hop podcast for Sports Fun monthly that just deals with classic 90 hip-hop and kind of going through like who are the best labels back then, the best groups, who's the best lyricist, the best producer and that kind of thing so we're in the initial talks of doing that and putting that together we'll probably have a couple episodes of that probably by June I would think but yeah I mean I think it's just seeping into everything and it's not going away anytime soon.
0: Yeah I agree and uh, I forgot to mention all the Smoke with Matt Barnes and Stephen Jackson and the pioneer of merging sports and hip-hop, I think, was the late, great Stuart Scott. And then we also got to give a big shout out to Stephen A. Smith who has ties to the triad played basketball at West Ham State University under the leadership of Clarence Big House Games.
1: Yeah, man. Uh, Stuart Scott is probably my biggest influence ever in terms of media and blending sports and hip-hop culture together. He did it in a way that it didn't sound forced. Like, once he realized he could talk the way he wanted to, the one that taught me to be yourself. Like, don't try to sound like somebody else or try to emulate somebody else's show or their vocal patterns or what they say, like they're saying, be you. If you're good at what you do, people will come to you. One of my teachers in high school said something to me that I've always kept with me really throughout the rest of my life, and it was that you know you're good at whatever it is you do when you can reach people you weren't trying to initially reach. And I've always kept that with me. Like, if you just do what you're supposed to be doing, or if it's a good product, people will find you. Um, people will talk about you and people will get to you. But when you try to be someone else, or try to emulate something else or try to copy what someone else is doing, it comes off that way and. It- you might have some success early, but it's not lasting. and leading. So do stuff that makes you proud and do stuff that allows you to reach people you weren't trying to reach in the first place, and that's a pretty successful word.
0: Channels you want to give and let people know how they can hear the rundown and what times it is available.
1: Really, the shop, everybody that's been paying attention to what we're doing is sticking with us. We have some people that came along when rundown got canceled off of Terrestrial Radio, and that's helped spread the word online. I've got a core group of people that are kind of working with me, Ross Thunderbird, Brandon Blakey, Marcus Shockley over at Sports, Chris Lee. You know, a lot of different people that have kind of, you know, urged me to continue on with what we're doing and just helping us build a bigger platform. You can get to the Rundown a number of ways now. There's a Sports A Monthly YouTube channel that we just launched that has the the video versions of that available. The audio versions of all the Rundown episodes are available on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Just search the Rundown with Desmond Johnson or search Sports A Monthly or just go to sportscornermonthly.com. There's a podcast section on our website where you can go and access the archives of the Rundown and all the other podcast that we serve and host so uh multiple ways to get to us just google the rundown with Desmond Johnson it'll give you a multiple amount of ways to, <laughs> to get to where our content is and uh, hopefully you guys will come and check us out alright
0: ladies and gentlemen there you have it Desmond Johnson of the Rundown and Sports Carolina Monthly Des thank you for doing this interview with me and it's been a pleasure
1: hey drill hey from one spark to another man keep doing what you're doing I appreciate you inviting me on and talking a little hip hop and sports and man I like what you're doing man just keep it going if you ever need anything from me just let me know
0: no who knows?